and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. Uh, before we get started, before I introduce our, our wonderful guests for this afternoon, uh, I'd like to give out some some show information uh, regarding our website, uh, where you can find all things related to the show, including our lineup and some wonderful events that we have in the works. And you can find everything at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Also, if you're listening and you'd like to call into the show, we would love to hear from you. You can dial 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. 3306. Um, and as always, be sure to follow us on social media. Uh, we have accounts with Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at womentowatch.net, where we post a lot of the behind-the-scene photos and all kinds of good stuff. And lastly, I just want to give a, a quick shout-out and a welcome aboard to someone who's going to be joining the Women to Watch team. I hope she's listening. Her name is Christina Jones, and uh, she's going to be on board with us to um, help us with some programs and some new business and some really exciting things that we have in the works as well. Uh, so now I'd like to introduce our guest. Uh, by the way, my name is Sue Rocco. I sometimes forget to introduce myself. I'm so excited about my guests. Um, I am very honored this afternoon to have a woman joining me um, who's done some incredible work. Her name is Caroline Boudreau. Caroline is the founder of the Miracle Foundation. And um, we're going to learn all about her really remarkable story about leaving one career um, and starting a nonprofit foundation that has seen really incredible success and great work for children. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sue. I'm so glad you're doing this show. It's so important. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. I, I really, I'm so truly honored. Your story is remarkable to me on so many levels. And I took a few minutes this weekend to, um, of course, take a look at your TED Talk, which uh, really moved me and, and I'm sure uh, millions of people who have watched it um, and really spoke well, you spoke so much from your heart about why you're doing the work you're doing, um, and it, it, it really prepared me for today. So, again, thanks so much for taking the time to, to share your story with us and our listeners. My pleasure. So, first of all, where are you calling from today? Are you in Austin? I am in, no, I'm actually in Manhattan today. I'm in Chelsea. Okay. Oh, so that's fun. Yes. Good. Yeah, very fun. Good. Good. Um, so listen, I want to I want to first hear about the young Caroline Boudreau and, and hear a little bit about your life growing up in Louisiana um, and kind of where everything started for you and what shaped the uh, incredible integrity and, and compassion that you have today. So um, I understand your dad was a pharmacist and your mom was a social worker um, and you were one of seven. Is that correct? That's correct. 
That's correct. Small Catholic family of just seven seven kids <laughs> growing up in South Louisiana, you know, as a Cajun. So a lot of the Cajun, you know, crawfish boils, shrimp boils, you know, really a great Catholic uh, South Louisiana upbringing. But one of the lucky ones, you know, I had two parents that were educated, that believed in education, that sacrificed a great deal to give us a good education and loved each other, still love each other still love each other to this day they're still both in 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 lake charles yeah and you know i was just one of the lucky ones i just didn't know how lucky i was until i saw people that didn't have anything that i had yeah i took everything for granted yeah yeah that yeah that happens you know when when life is good (laughs) and you know you're not exposed to to um kind of the other side sometimes there's um you know there's no reason why you wouldn't know, you know, kind of some of the things that, uh, that are going on in the world. And especially, you know, today is so different with, um, internet. Um, I, I think about our children and how they're growing up in such a different way, um, with the knowledge, uh, of seeing some of the things that are going on in the world outside their community. It's so powerful. And that's why I love your show so much because, I, you know, I never heard these things, you know, when I was younger. Now that you, you're putting people out there, you're putting people that are making a big difference, out there and people are truly inspired to be able to do something different and and perspective is so valuable and i think that's what Mm -hmm. your show brings to the table is it brings a perspective that is you know anyone can always use a perspective you're never too old to get a new perspective that's right that's right i thank you for saying that um yes and i think you're absolutely right um and of course you know the the way i know to do that is really to just kind of share the stories of women that are that are doing it well you know and and of course I, I always want people to understand, you know, what we call the story behind the story, so to speak, because um, each individual story, each original story um, has another lesson to share. And so um, I wanted to talk also about the fact that you, so you went on and received a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from Louisiana State University. Um, and right. then, you know, ended up in the TV advertising industry. So can, talk about that for a little bit. You know, what transpired between college and your, your career and how you uh, came to land in TV advertising after having studied psychology, which, by the way, is always an incredible base for any career, right? <laughs> it is. It yeah. is. My, well, my mother was a social worker. She placed adoptions for the state of Louisiana. She worked, she worked heavily in foster care. So I, I'd grown up seeing her, hand, you know, work with these children that were just so desperate and in need of attention. And I was incredibly interested in the difference between nature versus nurture. What part of us is or is born and what part of us can someone, you know, through nature alter? Mm. I was very interested in that. And so yeah. I, I studied a lot of biology as well as psychology. And I moved to Austin, Texas to get into their but they had, a, they had a doctorate program, doctoral program in biological psychology. It was the only one in the United States. Mm. So that's why I landed in Austin. So I applied to uh, to get my doctorate at the University of Texas. And in the meantime, I worked as a, uh, a temporary in an, uh, for a temporary agency where I'd go work five or six days for one company and then go work five or six days for another company. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was in that when I was doing that temporary work that I got the letter from the University of Texas saying that I had not gotten accepted. And I was devastated. No. You know, one of those letters that just, just you know, it's like, you know, you know that the trajectory of your life 
yeah. is not going to be what you want. You know, I was, I was so just blown away. I couldn't believe that, that I didn't get accepted to that program. Mm. So uh, my uh, boyfriend at the time said, you know, Caroline, you just have the personality for sales. I think you would do really well in sales. You could make a lot of money. And, you know, I hated that idea. I didn't want to be a salesperson. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> oh to be like a research psychologist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very different. Well, that's so fun. I'm laughing so, because we, we have that in common. And, and I've told my story many times about the fact that everyone that knew and loved me said, Sue, you really should be in sales. And that was never what I wanted to do. Um, no, yeah, but, no, that's it. nobody grows up to be in sales. Well, that's some people sharky. love it. Yeah, I guess some people love it and they're good at it. But I understand what well, you're saying. Well, I ended up, yeah, I, I ended up, I, I guess I didn't really understand what it was. But I, uh, so I started working um, for, you know, I was working as a temporary and I started taking job, uh, job interviews for sales jobs. And I was on my, I was on my way to my third interview at Xerox because I heard that they had a, a great training program. I thought, I might as well go somewhere where they can train me. Mm-hmm. So I was in my third interview, which I thought I was probably going to get the job. And I'm in the elevator in this big high rise in Austin. And this man is in the elevator and he says, that is a sharp looking suit you're wearing. And I said, oh my gosh, thank you. I'm on my way to this interview. And that, you know, it makes me feel a little better that, you know, I can walk in with some confidence. And he said, what are you looking to do? And I said, well, I'm going to try to get a job in sales. And he said, oh, my gosh, he said, please do me a favor, stay on the elevator, go back up to the 26th floor, and please just hand my wife your resume. We're starting a television station. We're, we would love to hire a salesperson. Just give her your resume, and let's just talk. I mean, just be open to it. Wow. And they hired me the next day. That's how I ended up, because I thought, well, television is a lot more interesting than copy machines. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, wait, did you go to that interview and then also go up? Oh, and yes. Get, you did? Oh, my oh, gosh. Yes. Wow. Oh, yeah. I definitely I definitely went to the interview. Yeah. Uh, but I went back up and I met his wife and she was wonderful. And they they launched my career in television advertising. And because it was such a startup, it was so small, I really got to learn about the business and being an executive. So I got I got my feet wet. At a, at a really small station, we joke that all four of our, our viewers loved the television station. <laughs> <laughs> it was so small. <laughs> but the four viewers we had thought we were great. <laughs> well, what was the programming? It was all syndicated. We didn't have any news. You know, it was Cheers and Simpsons. and Yeah, I don't, I don't even remember. That was so many years ago. Okay. But that station ended up getting bought by the CBS affiliate. Oh, okay. And so that was a very lucrative deal for me. And then we ended up getting bought again by the Fox affiliate. So again, a pretty lucrative deal. Mm. So that's, that's where, that's when, that's when the rubber started meeting the road for me because, you know, my parents, we were, I would say we were middle class, but there were seven of us and we all went to a Catholic school. My parents were really you know, support, you know, very wanted, really wanted us to study and and have great education. So we sacrificed financially or they sacrificed financially for us to be able to get that kind of education. And I thought when I started making money that things would change for me, like I would get more confident and I would be happier and I'd have some kind of contentment and fulfillment. And just none of that happened. It was very confusing. I, Mm. I, I was really shocked. I thought the more until finally one day my father said, Caroline, how many zeros is it going to take for you to get happy and be content? How many? Wow. 
Yeah, and I really started, I started realizing then that it, it was just something missing. I mean, just wasn't content, and I wasn't fulfilled. And yes, I could buy what I wanted, but who cared? And I wasn't married, and I didn't have children, and I just thought, this is something's not, something's not quite right. I'm not mm. happy. Yeah. I, feel, I felt wasted. So a friend of mine and I went to a happy hour one night. We were, we were having this very conversation, and she said, you know what we should do, Caroline? We should just quit our jobs and take a trip around the world. And I, I laughed, but I had traveled with her before, and I knew she meant it, and I said, let's do it. So we went back to her house, and we spread this world map on the floor, and we planned this trip around the world that we were going to take. And that was the beginning of that was the beginning of my new life. Yes. Well, that listen, you know, you're, you're sharing that very kind of matter of fact, hey, let's quit our job and, and take a trip around the world. And people say that, but they rarely do it. So <laughs> I want to know, you know, really, where did the courage come from in you to, to, to actually do that? How, first of all, how many years had you been working in the advertising uh, Nine field? years. So for nine I had years, been working nine years. Yeah, and, and the the best, my best friend that she worked with me. So she and I worked together at the same station. And she and I, we had traveled. We had done a, a big safari the year before in Africa, and so we knew that we were great partners. We okay. knew we could we could totally handle that side of it. We we were going to be great partners. Right. And I I had traveled a lot, but you know, I think when. I mean, for me, I, let me only speak for me, but when I do something like that, I mean, I didn't know what I was running to, but I knew exactly what I was running from. Mm. I, I was running from something more than I was running to something. I was trying to get out. I was trying to find something. You know, and my dad laughed at me. He said, Caroline, how can you find yourself in a place you've never been? <laughs> but <laughs> well, <that's laughs> Because, so you know, I'm sure... People did not think it was a good idea. Right. Know? Well, that's right. And I'm sure. And that was one of my questions for you, you know, when you spoke to your colleagues and, um, you know, friends and family and said, this is what I'm going to do. My guess is there were many skeptics. And how, what did you say to them? Because, you know, were you all, you were probably a little unsure yourself, but you were, you were going to do it. You made the decision. Um, but I'm sure you weren't sure what you were going to find. No, we knew we were going to have a good time, and my friend, you know, my best friend, I'm taking my best friend, we weren't scared. We were just excited. We yeah. could afford it. We knew we were highly marketable, both of us. We knew we could come back and get a job. Okay. It wasn't, we weren't worried about that. Yeah. It was, it was just something we were just so excited to do. It was a total adventure. Yeah. You know, you you have mentioned in you know in telling your story about the fact that you you were you were successful from a financial standpoint and you were, you know you were making good money. Did did that change you from the young girl that you that you grew up as? It did. It it changed me. I think in not a great way. It made me feel. I think it gave me a sense of false confidence, like. It was like I was special or something. Like, you know, if you can make money, then then you're more special than other people. In fact, one of my uh, friends from college came to visit me, and I, I thought she was going to be so impressed. She was going to come to my house. I was going to pick her up in my nice car and take her to my beautiful home. And I, I thought she was going to be so impressed. And she said, "Boy, I sure miss the poor Caroline." Oh wow! <laughs> right? Wow. Very egotistical. I know. 
Oh, that's fascinating. I have to say, I really think that was part of it. I think that was part of the reason I wanted to run, to get away from it. So I didn't want to be snotty. I didn't want that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be like that. And did you also feel as though you just, you were looking for something meaningful, more meaningful than what you were doing? Yes. I was looking for everything that money couldn't buy. Right. Peace, contentment, fulfillment, Mm -hmm. happiness. Yeah. I was looking for all of that. Yeah. But I was really also... In the beginning, we were just trying to have a good time. You know, we, we spread the world map on the floor. We started picking the countries that we wanted to visit. We had both done Europe, so we didn't want to do that. We wanted to see what we were calling the real world. And she really wanted to go to India because she'd been sponsoring a little boy there. Right. There wasn't, at that point, any part of this trip that was philanthropic or voluntourism or anything like that. We The whole thing was based on fun mm-hmm. and scuba diving and, you know, things that were, you know, adventure. Yeah. And so this part, that she, the fact that she wanted to go to India, I just thought was ridiculous because that kid wasn't real. And I thought they were stealing from her. So, yeah, I told her. I said, they give everybody the same picture. There's no way this kid is real. Let's not go all the way to India to find somebody we can't find. And she said, no, I really care about this part. I care about him. Did I she really want to go. Yeah, did she know for sure that he would be there? Or was she just assuming that, that there was indeed this boy that she she'd been had, supporting? She had total faith, Sue. Yeah. I thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> she absolutely believed that he was there. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad yeah. he was, too. I'm so glad he was. So we started this trip around the world in January of 2000. We started in South Africa and worked our way up. And in, and in May, we got to India. And we found out this little boy was in, was in a remote part of India called Orissa. It's, on, it's the, a state on the eastern side, one state south of Calcutta. Not a very big tourist area there. So we get all the way to this village. It's, they take us 45 minutes off this paved road. Our car doesn't have air conditioning, so the dust is just flying in the car. It's 119 degrees. So dust is just sticking to us. It's a 45-minute drive out to this middle of nowhere. We get out of the car. We get paraded through this National Geographic village mud huts thatched roofs working water wells cows children everywhere naked children everywhere and at the end of this long parade there's a little boy standing there with the very first picture she ever sent Mm. and he was real he he was manis and he was there with his parents and his little brother and we had this amazing village ceremony yeah and it was i mean i was blown away i couldn't believe it i couldn't believe he was real and what organization, so what organization um, connected her to this boy? It was the Children's, Christian Children's Fund. I think they're called Child Fund now. Okay, okay. But, they, you know, that's, that's where you want people to operate. That's where you want a developing, you know, work to happen because it was in the middle of nowhere. Nobody mm-hmm. was out in the middle of 45 minutes off a paved road. Right. So that so – we go ahead. That, that was, so that was uh, – that was how we got to that little remote village. So we were going back into the village every day. We thought we'd just do some volunteer work, which turned out to be uh, building a playground for them because we didn't speak the language and it was, it was very difficult to communicate. But there was this one guy there who was a social worker and he invited us to his house for dinner. Now it's mother's day in the United States. It's May the 14th of 2000. It's 119 degrees. We're hot and sweaty and gritty my friend had lost her mom the year before, so she was having a terrible day. 
And I was exhausted because I had gotten up really early to call my mom. But we reluctantly agreed to go to this guy's house for dinner. And we left the village and drove to this guy's house. And, and when we got to the gate, we opened it up and we opened, we walk into this orphanage. 110 filthy, bald, empty looking children just staring at us. I mean, I had no idea this guy lived in an orphan. I had no idea that that's what we were going to do. So we had dinner with them. They served us chicken and they served the children a fermented rice. No protein. That's why they were all bald. And we went to a beautiful prayer service with them. And then we were holding them and, you know, letting them, you know, touch us because I say that because they were like Velcro babies. They would just attach to you. They would just grab onto your leg or grab onto your arms and you'd be sitting down and you'd have all these kids all over you. And then you'd stand up and you'd still have these kids on you. Mm-hmm. They just would not let go. And there was this little baby girl, this infant. She just kept trying to get to me. She was trying so hard to get to me, but there were so many big kids around. She, she just was really having a hard time. So I saw her and I picked her up. And I picked her up and I put her on my, uh, I held her. And when you hold them, they just, they would just push their bodies into yours. And I started singing her the lullaby that my mother used to sing to me because it hadn't, I hadn't forgotten for a second that it was Mother's Day. And she fell asleep in my arms and urinated all over me. And I, I went to put her in her room. There was no electricity, so my eyes had to adjust to the darkness. But I walk into the room and there are these, wooden beds, like picnic tables, you know, and having to put this filthy, wet, hungry orphan on a wooden bed on Mother's Day. I heard her bones hit that bed, and it was like everything changed for me. I would never be the same after that. That's amazing. Um, and, and here's what I want to know, Caroline. When you describe that day and, and what you saw and what you experienced, how did you not fall apart? How were you able to turn that experience into an actionable um, decision and, and you know, uh, say, I'm going to fix this? I think I couldn't not do something. I mean, who would I be to ignore that? I didn't think anybody else would ever go there. What if nobody else ever went? The other thing that kind of crystallized in my mind really at the time is, you know, one of my things my mother used to tell me is responsibility is the ability to respond. And I knew that I had that. I just, it was never a question. I thought, I will not stand for this. This We can do so much better than this. How hard can it be? <laughs> that was naive, but... <laughs> no, well, that's, knew... <laughs> yeah, that's great, though. Right? That, that, that attitude, I think, has served you very well. Yeah. Had I known it was going to be this hard, I might not have done it, so thank goodness I didn't know. But right. We, I mean, at some point, you just have to say, no, unacceptable. Yes. Who are we to let children just suffer? We're going to just let children suffer? Yeah. No. 
Well, when we, when you start to learn the statistics about the numbers, I think that that enormity of just how many orphan children there are, um, it can be very overwhelming, you know. And, and so my question is, was your first inkling? I'm going to focus right here, right now, on on these children in this in this small uh, place, and then everything else will evolve from there. No, I actually did the numbers like you were talking about. I looked at the stats and I thought, wow, all these children. I know people that would adopt these children. So I did start supporting the the kids in that orphanage immediately, which meant I was sending money over, which, by the way, is a terrible way to support people. But um, I've learned that now. But I came back to the U.S. and I opened the Miracle Foundation thinking the, every one of these miracles needs a foundation. And that was the, the goal, to give every one of them a foundation. Mm-hmm. It's still our goal. And I started an adoption agency. And I got my license in the U.S. I got my license uh, internationally. I got my license in India. And I got my 501c3 nonprofit status. And in 2003, so three years later, I went back to India to start adopting children. I found families in, in America that wanted to adopt them, of course, and I found, which was easy, demand was high, and I found children that were available for adoption in India, and I went back to see them, to, to meet the children that we were going to be, that were going to be adopted. They were in six different orphanages, so I thought, well, I'll just take a sweep, and I'll just, I'll go visit 26 orphanages, so I would, I just went all over the country visiting orphanages to try to get a landscape of what was going on. And the children that were available for international adoption were fat and inoculated. And sometimes the children that weren't available for international adoption were tied to their beds by their necks. It it was like if you were available for international adoption, you were worth your weight in gold. Otherwise, no one cares about you. Mm. And, of course, they wanted cash. They wanted $10,000 in cash and $1,000 in a check, which I just – I called all six families and I said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I, I can't buy people. I'm not buying people. Right. And we had the whole conversation about the ends justifies the means. But I, I really, I was so haunted by the children that were going to be left and who was caring for them. And are we only going to care about kids if we can have them in our homes and call them our own? Mm. Or are we going to ever be a society that calls all children their own? So I changed the focus of the Miracle Foundation in 2003 to focus more on the unadoptable than the adoptable because there are a lot of people working in international adoption, and they're doing great, fine things. But my concern is what about the kids that aren't? Right, right. And so, yeah. And so, you know, it's really – I've had to morph the strategy so many times, but as long as the mission, which is about getting children a family they deserve – uh, taking care of children and empowering them to reach their full potential. The mission doesn't change, just the strategy on how we get there has changed over the years. I bet. So when you said um, the worst thing you can do is to just send money, is that because it doesn't always end up in the right place? Yeah. yeah. And a lot of times people that are poor don't know how to spend money. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you send people money, you're not really teaching them how to, how to fish. You're giving them the fish. Right. But we know that the most, the best way to help people is to help them help themselves. Right. So what, what we've done is 
we've developed a set of best practices, like an operational model, think franchise. Mm -hmm. And we go and work with people that are running children's homes, and we teach them how to run their children's home like a company. And we give them a way to measure how they're doing. And the children can can get everything so that the kids can get everything that they need to thrive. Right. I want to, you know what, we have to take a quick break. And that's exactly what I want to talk to you about when we come back is this uh, methodology that you've developed and the 12 rights that it's based on. Okay. Okay. We'll Sounds be, good. We'll be right okay. back. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to an- announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website. FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to FoleyHillsleyGroup.com to learn more. That's F O L E Y H I L L S L E Y Group.com. Or call 610 238 6636. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Caroline Boudreau, who is the founder of the Miracle Foundation. And, Caroline, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about this methodology that you have developed and really kind of explain why it is um, – strategic and and why as as we talked about before the money is really being used in the most um, effective way possible well we the the idea was to enable children to realize their full potential so we knew we weren't going to just be able to send food over to every orphanage in the world and that was going to fit it wasn't going to change the trajectory of their life we have to 
give, get them to a point where they can break the cycle of poverty. Right. So that was the idea. Give, how, what do you have to do to enable children to reach their full potential? Fortunately, the United Nations in 1989 had ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. These are rights that every child around the globe has, regardless of, of religion or color or continent. Every child has the same fundamental rights. So we took the rights that pertain to orphan children, that pertain to most children, and there are 12 of them. The right to a stable, loving, nurturing environment, the right to health care and nutrition, the right to quality education, the right to live in conditions of dignity and freedom, the right to be protected from abuse and neglect, the right to participate in decisions that affect them. So we took the 12 rights of the child as issued by the UN and ratified by 183 countries, and we codified them. What is the definition of health care and nutrition? How do you know if a child is actually meeting the, the standard of health care and nutrition? Well, basically, you know, if you take the height and weight of every child and you plot it against the growth chart, and you take the hemoglobin of every child, which measures the iron in their blood. So we have these impact indicators for every single right, and we um, developed this repeatable, measurable, and transparent model on evaluating how an orphanage is doing and providing all of those rights. Once we figure out how, how an orphanage is doing and providing the rights, then we train them on how to fill in the gaps, and it dramatically improves the lives of the, ch the children. And what's great about it is that because all children have the same fundamental rights, it can work in any country, any orphan-bearing country. So today we're operating in India and Uganda, Sierra Leone, Kenya, and Ethiopia, and we, we keep expanding into other countries. I, I Does that make you. sense? Did I explain that well? Yes, yes, very well. And I think you're, I, I just really um, appreciate the, you know, the attitude that you have about – how, you know, just feeding children will not kind of help them to, as you said, reach their potential. It's such a, there's such a complete, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's just so many holistic, factors. that right? Yes, that's right, holistic, um, that you have to, and that's really to for the dignity of the child and for, you know, really um, helping them to see their own um, abilities which, and make them the CEO of their life. There you go. One, yeah. Like one of the beautiful rights is the right to be heard and participate in decisions that affect them. We train children. These are your 12 rights. They're yours. You have them already, but you can play a big part in, in realizing them. And they thrive. Can I, can I give you one example? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm at this children's home. There's 120 kids. I'm standing there, I'm talking to them, and I said, you know, one, so one of the ways we help them with the be heard and participate is they get, they get on children's committees. So they are on the committees that have to do with health care and recreation and, uh, uh, you know, pre prevention from abuse. And so I'm talking to these kids, and I said, raise your hand if you are on a children's committee. And some of the kids raised their hand, and I said, now raise your hand if you are on the health care committee. And the kids raised their hand, and I said, stand up if you're the minister of the health care committee. And this little curly-haired 8-year-old girl stands up, I mean, proud, as tall as she can be, her hands straight down, her fist clenched, so proud, her chin up, so proud that she's the minister of the health care committee. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> now, what is it that you're, tell me what your committee does. And she 
said, we make sure that everybody brushes their teeth twice a day. Yeah. And I said, well, let me see how she's doing. Everybody show me your teeth. Everybody, let me see your teeth. You know, smile (laughs) for me. So, you know, they went and got the driver and they showed me his teeth. The house mothers, the librarian came in and showed me her (laughs) teeth. The cooks, they're making everybody in the whole children's home brush their teeth twice a day. You know, they own it. Right now the power is going to her head. (laughs) And I tell people, if you don't think kids know how to obey the rules and follow the rules, get in a car with an eight-year-old and don't put on your seatbelt. They won't have it. Well, you know, but it also, yeah, I love that story so much. I mean, it just speaks to the fact that when you give a child responsibility and make them feel important, it just lights them up. You know? Yes. I love it, that. It really works. Yeah. It really works. You know, so here's, I want to talk to you about something. You know, at the end of the day, every, everything that you've put together and you've been working on, it's not easy. You know, it, it's a business. And business. Um, it's a business. Exactly. So you, there's so many things that you had to tackle in order to, to really make this happen and keep it sustainable and keep it going. Um, I know there's been some, you know, foreign barriers and um, you've had to to fight against corruption and you've had to pull together a board um, of people and enlist um, all kinds of supporters and of course raise money what tell me what your philosophy is for tackling these things what is your style in reaching out to people and really getting the support you need to keep this going oh I love that I love that question you know, I think there's three things people really want. They want to love and be loved. They want their families to be healthy, happy, and taken care of. And they want to make a difference. And in our culture, we say go for the money. That's why in my TED Talk I, I talk about that. We talk, It's all about going for the money in our culture. We, we kind of said that every day. And going for the money doesn't yield any of those three. It doesn't bring any of those three on. So what I've been able to do with people is show them how they can make a difference. That's that measurable approach that you, you talked about it being a business. Mm-hmm. It's a business. Right. And when you, t- when you tell people that if, when they invest X, this is what they're going to get for somebody else, they know they can make a difference and they, they, they give. People are phenomenally generous. I just think they don't want their money going into a black hole. They want to know where their money's going. Right, right. Or th- or that it is so, going to make a difference. It's not just kind of a you know investment into a product or you know or, or a service, but really a very important mission. It's it's spiritual food. It's you know taking care of other people. Not only feeds them, it feeds us. It makes us richer to give. That's right. That's right. And people truly, people truly understand that. They mm-hmm. just want to make sure that the hard-earned money they gave is actually going to go into the minds, mouths, and bellies of children. Yes. And that's what we're able to show because of our our model. Right. Yeah. People have been great. I'm yeah. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm 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 shocked at how how many people have have stepped up and just. Well, my so guess they, they is can't also, wait to help us. but you know what, Caroline, my guess is it's also, you know, you, you speak and you work with such sincerity and people feel that and they see it. Um, do you believe that you're, you know, your nine years in 
TV advertising um, enabled you to have a more expanded network to reach out to? Definitely. I think that helped. I think knowing how to sell helped. You know, I was selling airtime mm-hmm. then, which was totally a concept. I'm selling a loving family for every child by 2050. That's a pretty, that's a, you know, it might as well be air. Yeah. It's a yeah, concept. Right, right. <laughs> So tell me how you... And that, by the way, is the goal, by the way. That is the yeah. goal. And it's not just my goal. It's a, it's a, a, the goal of a lot of organizations in the orphan space globally. We want and expect a loving family for every child globally by 2050. Wow. That's... And yet nothing's heavy if everyone lifts. If everybody did their little part and supported children that don't have parents, we, we could totally be there. We could probably beat that goal. Do you speak, I'm sure you do, to to the children directly about this goal and say, look, you know, as you give them each a role to play and responsibilities that we're all in this together and this is our mission and our goal? Yeah, I tell them that their their job is to make sure that the next generation doesn't have to go through what they went through. Yeah. Okay, so tell me what you do. What do you say to yourself on those nights? And I'm sure you've had many, where um, you know maybe you've gotten a couple of no's and things haven't gone the way that you had hoped. Um, uh, and maybe you haven't. I don't know. When you feel overwhelmed, you know, are we moving fast enough? Are we doing enough? Is it making a difference? What do you say to yourself? Oh, God, that's a really good question. Well, you know, the couple of times that people have advised us to quit when we weren't as successful as we were today, you know, like the adoption stuff, when that went bad, and then we we had owned a couple of our own orphanage and found a lot of corruption there, and that went bad. And There were some people that would, you know, there's always those people that say, just quit, just stop. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not going to get there. It's not, it's too hard. You know, I always thought, well, everybody gives up on them. You know, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be the person that gives up on them because everybody's already given up on them. Mm. And if they knew that there was just one person out there that stood for them, maybe they could believe. But I'm just determined. I'm just not going to quit. I'm just not. I might not be as successful as you want to be. And, you know, I do have this sense of urgency that keeps me up at night. I do. I bet. Uh, well, I'm that restless. was my next question. What keeps you up at night? I want to know what keeps you up at night. What, you know. We're not. We're not going fast enough. Yeah. They only have a childhood once. It's hard to be hungry day after day. They can't wait. Right. You know, I think your your um, your method of, of kind of bringing the children into it themselves and having them believe will be a, a force and an energy that, yeah. right, that, maybe will help. Oh, it's magic. Yes. You can see the shift in their eyes. Yeah. You can see it in their eyes. Yeah. They just start to believe. One of the things that you've done, which I thought was so brilliant, uh, was to, you know, when you go into these orphanages, that, that you've changed the language in the orphanages. And just simply by having the women and men who work there, uh, well, the women, I'll say, be, call, be called mom to the children. Um, and the children, what, what is it that the, the children are not, there, there used to be another phrase. They're for, called inmates. They're, they call them inmates. Well, yeah. that's off. Right. How could that have ever been? Yeah. And getting them to call the children by their name, 
little things. You know, when you control the dialogue, you, you really you can control the conversation. So changing the name and the the, the caretakers tell me, you know, when when I when one house mother told me she said when they started calling me Ma, was such longing. I became that. I became their mom. They they loved you know the the children change first. The adults are the ones with the skepticism. The adults are the ones that think, oh no, this this model won't work, or we can't do that, or we've never done it like that. But that's why it's so important to get the children in because they they they'll believe you in a second, mm-hmm. and they'll start acting. They'll start acting the way that it, that they learn is different. They're open. Right. The children change. The children change first. It's amazing. Yeah. That's so interesting. No, I can, yeah. You know, children do say, "We can do it. We can do it." And adults, yeah. you know, I guess you know, adults have had more life experience, and you know, they've come up against some challenges, so they're more skeptical. Um, yeah, and kids are like, "What?" Well, you know, they said to put your seatbelt on. It's the rule. <laughs> it's not a big deal. <laughs> Just follow how. the they rule. Know about yeah. the crash test dummy that you know died yeah. while he had his seatbelt on. They don't have all this data. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, tell me, getting back to, you know, again, we were talking about the, the nonprofits and, and that kind of work. They are a business. If someone's listening and, what you know, had an interest uh, themselves of starting a nonprofit for a cause, what would be your number one piece of advice for them? Not to do it. Oh, boy. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I would say find an organization that's doing what you want them to do and push get behind the nonprofit because they've already got the people and they've got someone to fill out the tax forms and they've got someone to respond to the donor and they've got someone that has letterhead and they they have all that administrative stuff already done Mm -hmm. and we really do have enough nonprofits out there it's not a matter of opening another nonprofit just look at the number of cancer nonprofits out there Mm, there there's so many in fact, I would say and that's one of the things that I'm doing here in New York is I'm really trying to collaborate, you know, have less silos, have less number of organizations working in different ways. Right. And if we can all come together and start singing the same song. So it's not a matter of, you know, splitting the pie even more. Just it, get behind get behind an organization and push and raise money for them and support them through social media and talk about awareness. That's really, really what I would suggest. Yeah. Because – that's great it's kind advice. of like the entrepreneurial myth. You know, you think you think you're great at making cookies, so you want to open a bakery. You never end up making cookies. You end up doing all the administrative work That's and hiring right. the people and dealing with OSHA. You know? Yes, yes. What <laughs> and is the sh- last thing you ever do is right. make the cookies? Oh my gosh, so true, so true. Tell me about your team. How many how many t- you know team members do you have? What does your um, your group look like? We, we've got in America, we have nine, and globally, we have another fifty. Great. Uh, we're we're a small group. I have a president who came from the uh, software as a services uh, sector. She came in and she's the one that put all the data behind our work. She's she's highly strategic. She's been with me since 2009, and she is a she's a big driver of the business side of of the work. That's good to have. I mean. And- I've yeah. got a board of directors that I would put up against any for-profit board of directors. Just amazing group of people that are committed and, mm-hmm. and really willing to work. Yeah. You know, I was trying to educate myself a little bit about the numbers and statistics, and I, I'm curious, 
correct? It maybe I'm reading it wrong, but why the discrepancy about the number? Uh, there's 153 million orphans worldwide, but then I read there's 18 million um, currently living in orphanages and on the streets. Why? Why the discrepancy of those two numbers? It's what so so smart. It's a it's a problem with definition, and I want to say I definitely want to say problem. The United Nations or UNICEF defined orphan years ago as a child that is missing one parent, and the reason they did that is because in a developing country, if your father makes a dollar twenty five a day and your mom dies, I mean there's no daycare. It's I mean he's he's stuck. You you are in an orphanage. You are going to be placed in institutional care. So I think that that's why UNICEF made that definition. Well, today, it really seems to be a little bit inappropriate because you have so many single moms. You have women that with just a little bit of help, it's one of the big things we do. We help families stay together with just a little bit of help. A woman could keep her child. But even children that aren't living in orphanages are considered orphans if their parents are below the poverty line and they only have one. So that's still the case today, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, that's still the case today. Yeah. That's yeah. still the case today. So, the, But the new idea is to get every child a loving family as opposed to putting them in an orphanage or making an orphanage a great place to live. An orphanage is not a great place to live. We want children to be in a loving family. Right. Right. And it's, what a beautiful world we would have. If every, I mean, imagine. Oh, my gosh. Imagine the world that we would have if every kid grew up in a loving home. Yes. It would uh, it would change it would certainly change a lot um, if people are listening and you know they really want to get involved and help. Is there some? I mean, that's always a question. You know, what can they do to help? Um, can you tell me about any specific projects you're working on right now where you need assistance, whether it's through donations or or money or volunteering time? And here, in well, the, a couple of things. Yeah, you know, go ahead. money. Uh, you know, Mother's Day is coming up. We're raising money for Mother's Day. It's our 17-year anniversary. Remember, I met the orphans on Mother's Day in 2000. Mm -hmm. So we are doing a Mother's Day campaign where you can honor your mom in honor of somebody that doesn't have one. And you can you can do, I think we're doing three kind of levels where you can just honor your mom with a donation, a simple donation. But if you do $60 and up, you get Tina Fey's bossy pants. Uh, from Amazon Kindle, Amazon's uh, giving that to all of our donors that donate $60 or more for Mother's Day. And then for $125 or more, um, they'll get Maggie Louise's Confections Gourmet Chocolate uh, mailed to their mom within two business days. So we're oh. doing this Mother's Day campaign like yeah, we do every great. year. But, right. you know, show, your mom, show a mom you got it. You, you, yep. you know, you, you heard what she said and, and maybe take care of a kid that doesn't have one you know, that's so lucky. Like I said, I didn't know how lucky I was until I came face to face with these children. Yeah. And you were the, were you were the young, towards the end of the line of seven. Is that right? Were you one of the youngest? Yes, I was the sixth. Yeah. yeah. Six of seven. Yeah. Do you? Yeah, they thought I was crazy. <laughs> Are any of your siblings involved? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, they're all, they're all monthly donors they support us a couple of them have been over to to some of the orphanages we support in mm -hmm. different countries and they you know they're wonderful the girl that i traveled around the world with my best friend still my best friend to this day yeah uh, she's involved and that's that's i think that's one of the reasons we're so successful is we have so many people behind us including 
family and friends. And it all started with the family and friends, of course. Yeah. Can you tell me about that little girl and where she is today and how she's doing? The one that you picked up? Yes, her name is Shibani Das. She's 17 and a half years old. She'll be going to college next year. Um, she still lives in the same orphanage. She's a true orphan. She was abandoned in the bushes. Um, I haven't seen her in a couple of years, uh, but uh, I do get pictures of her from time to time. And she's, she is as beautiful then as she uh, today as she was then. Um, and she's got there's some pictures of her what she looks like today on our website. Wow. You know, that, yeah. those are always, kind, you know, those stories of, of really just kind of following these children and, and the, the difference that it makes, you know, when you do the work you're doing, I think really moves people to action. Yeah, and it works. It works. It works for us. It works for them. It works for the planet. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. Um, so when you head back, are you are you mainly in Austin, Caroline, or, or are you mostly over uh, in the countries where you're doing the work? I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. I'm, I live in Austin. I'm going to be in New York for the summer. Um, I'll be uh, in India also this year. So yeah, I'm kind of I'm I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm moving. You're moving. My you're, husband travels with me. So <laughs> yeah, well, your husband. So tell me, you know, when you're, I would say you probably completely intersect both lives, the work and, and your, um, you know, your personal life. I always like to say, you know, we, we really shouldn't talk about work-life balance anymore. It's just your life. It's, it's what you're doing, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. So when you're, but when you're not on your laptop and you're not networking and you're not um, raising money, tell me what, uh, what you love to do that really kind of grounds you. Oh, I love to work out. I love to walk. I love to explore and travel the world still. I, uh, I work, my husband and I love to cook together. Um, I still, you know, I have that huge family, so we spend as much time with our family as possible. I married a guy with uh, two grown children, and they have blessed us with a grandson, so I even have a grandson, oh, even nice. though I'm not even a mom. Yeah. Oh, that's so fun. My dad's like, you skipped to the good part. You're so lucky. <laughs> no fair. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a great life. It's very full, very fun. It's great. I'm so I'm so blessed. I'm yeah. so blessed to be the giver. Well, you know, it's I, I can hear the contentment in your voice, and and it's always interesting. We talk on the show a lot about you know women that are busy and doing doing big things. Um, stress is always a part of that. Would you say that you have less stress than perhaps a woman who's working a big job in a corporation, very very successful, but because your work is so much about giving back. No doubt about it. And I think that stress is self-imposed a lot of times. I really work hard on not stressing myself out. I just, I do everything I can do every day, and and the rest is you kind of up to the universe. But when I was working in the corporate world, I was so stressed out, I couldn't even stand it. Right. And they they made me feel like if if I wasn't there, they were going to just collapse. Like Fox is going to collapse without Caroline Boudreaux. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, you must have been doing a darn good job. But it. they love to make us feel like that. You know? Yeah. They love to make us feel like that. Yeah, yeah. we love to think like that. So, well, no, I'm definitely less stressed today. Yeah. I think that's a great lesson in, in um, you know, if, if you're kind of, you know, feeling unsettled in your life and you, and you, it, sometimes it doesn't have to be completely quitting your job and career and moving, you know, to another country to, 
to save orphans, but it can just be <laughs> doing something on a small scale, right, to, to volunteer or give back. And as you said, I think it, it really does work, right? To do for it others works. helps. It's a gift to you. And it's about the being. Who are we being? It's one thing to know about who we're doing, you know, we're, you know, what we're doing and how we're doing and what we're doing all the time. But who are we being? Mm. I think that's the big difference. Yeah, I love that. You know, and I, I, I said it in the back, in the end of my TED talk, you know, you know, 150 years ago, we had slaves in America. And we look at our ancestors like they're crazy. Maggie, can you really believe that your your ancestors really had slaves? I mean, can you believe it? Can you believe our ancestors like owned people? Right. What were they thinking? Yeah. What were they thinking? And that that's the same litmus test that history is going to have on us. Our children, my grandchildren, are going to look back at us and say, "Really? What were you thinking?" 153 million orphan children, 18 million of them living in institutions. What were you thinking? Why did you let that happen? Mm. You didn't do anything? I hope that ends so up being really, true. Yeah, I really do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I believe, yeah. I believe, so, I believe in you and I believe in your work and I think it will happen. Um Listen, Carol, I do too. Yeah, I really do. And thank you. I'm just going to thank you, you know, for your work and um, for your determination and for not giving up. Um, I think it's, I it's incredible. It. So, listen, just real quick, you're in, someone's listening and they want to get in touch with you to help. What's the best way to do that? Uh, they can email uh, info at miraclefoundation.org. Or they can go to our website at miraclefoundation.org and sign up for our newsletter and stay in touch with us. We'd, we'd love it. Okay. Terrific. Yeah. Even if they just want to hear how we're doing. Great. Caroline, thank you so much. I wish you success in New York and a safe travel back to Austin. Thank you, Sue. Thanks so much. Nice to be on your show. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Take care. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Be sure to check out our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Have a great week, everyone.